Michael, how are you doing here today? Good. Glad to, glad to be back. Appreciate what a, it. What a gorgeous day, man. Oh, it's awesome out there. Uh, I bet you want to be out at Wrigley doing the wave, huh? I'm a, first of all, I'm a White Sox guy. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's and then right. secondly, I agree with you. The wave should have been banned about 15 years ago. I'm one of those curmudgeons who sits in his seat and refuses to participate in the wave. So I'm, I'm, the, I'm one of the one percenters who will not do the wave. Maybe our, it's more like 5%. Right. Our news guy is saying the same thing. He says, good man, Michael Leonard. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have a good reason, though, for it. Like I, I, As I try and come up with the reason why I don't like it, I can't think of it. It just... It's annoying. You're at a professional sporting event. Don't don't do that. Cheer when they do well, and that should be the excitement that you need. Yeah, so. it's it's had its time. Remember, like twenty years ago, it was hot. But oh, like, come on. I mean, it's 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 ran its course. We need a new next best big, yes. big thing, whatever that is. Yeah. I have seen some stadiums that do. Maybe it's college that they do away, but then they split it in two, ah. and then they go double speed or slow motion. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah. Now maybe we got something there. At least I'm you're... not that sophisticated. Yeah. I'm not sure if I could if I could do that. So. If you have to consult with a sheet of paper to do the wave then we've already gone past that's a problem all right attorney michael leonard um you're someone that has been in front of federal juries here in chicago uh and i and we talked about this last time or the first time that you were here about the differences between it remind people about you've gotten a lot of not guilty verdicts which is pretty rare right somewhat rare yeah um Feel free to brag about yourself. I've given you the authority oh, I, I to would do hate it. To, I would hate to do that. But yeah, I mean, as you know, the percentage of the feds winning a trial is very high. Mm-hmm. However, in Chicago, I think in recent years and certainly in the last recent decade, that's changed uh, to a to a measurable degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, you know, you know that when you step into federal court in a federal criminal case, the odds are, you know, percentage wise stacked against you. They probably win 80 percent of the time. So if you can keep yourself at 50 percent or even 10 percent, you're, you're doing pretty well. Yeah. And what is that like when you beat the feds? I know I don't know if you look at it like that. If you're like, oh, I'm going to do it, I but do. You do. <laughs> I do. Well, it's, tell us why. Yeah. I think it's that's just, so cool. It's just a joy because you're you're ultimately against sort of the the just the characterization of the man. You know that all the resources. Um, and there's there's a certain um, attitude that goes with that too when you have all the resources and you win all the time. So it's kind of like beating the Yankees, you know. Right. You know. <laughs> so that's kind of the feeling. And uh, you know when you hear those magic words "not guilty" float across the courtroom, it's it's pretty exciting. You go, you you must have a celebration after one of those, right? Oh yeah, I go to those IPA places you were just telling me about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were talking about breweries uh, during the uh, commercial break. No, it, it, that's really cool, and I think that you know obviously people, you know, I think there is a, a collective like you know yeah against the man. Has that always been something about you? As even before you were a lawyer too. Yeah, I think I've always been a little bit of a contrarian. Just ask my wife. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's always been in my bones. And I think growing up, you know, even in Chicago when I was a kid in the suburbs, being a, a Sox fan versus a Cub fan, always kind of you know push pushing the, the uh, a little a little bit. I think I get what you're saying yeah. there. Hey, you know, I wanted to ask about this, and this came up. I actually was golfing this morning with some buddies, uh, six a.m. up at the Arboretum Club in Buffalo Grove, and. I did not shoot very well, and I, I am, we're in the middle of the game, and I hear my friend swearing behind me, and I assume he's just duffed another shot or something, but it was because he was looking at his phone, and he got jury summons. He oh, got it in the mail, and okay. his wife was letting him know, and it got me thinking about jury selection process. I knew we were going to be chatting today. What is the jury selection process from the federal government's perspective for federal cases? Yeah, in federal court, it's quite different than state court. You know, in state court, you get a lot of time as an attorney to really ask a ton of questions, really, really examine the potential jurors, figure out a lot of information about them, maybe get to, you know, 
indoctrinate them a little bit into your theory of the case. This is voir dire. Voir dire, yeah. I said it right. Yeah. Hey, yeah. I knew to that see, one. To hear, yeah. I'm learning. You've been really studying up, John. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but in federal court, it's very different. It's much, much more controlled by the judge. Um, they typically, especially since COVID, have a very lengthy juror questionnaire mm-hmm. that everyone fills out, which has all sorts of data. But it, ahead it's, of time, ahead of time. Yeah. But that's kind of generic stuff. You know, where do you live? Who are your kids? You know, have you been convicted of a crime? Do you know people in the military? Do you know people in law enforcement? A lot, a lot of generic questions. And then some are, are tuned, more fine-tuned to the case. You know, mm-hmm. let's say it's a healthcare fraud case. There might be some questions about that. Uh, but in general, you're getting a lot of generic information back. You're not, they're not writing a lot about themselves. And then they come in the court and they talk a little bit more about all the stuff they've said. You get to examine them a little bit, really through the judge, about what they've already told you. And then the attorneys are allowed some follow-up, although some judges limit it severely and others give you a little more leeway. But uh, compared to state court, it's very limited in terms of the attorney involvement. Is it just for timing? Do they just want to move things along quicker or do they consider their court system different than the state? one i think a little bit of both i think they want to move it along i think a lot of judges have uh the idea both in state court and federal court that you know you we don't need all this information as attorneys that we have what we need based upon kind of the the bread and butter type stuff that they ask for but i I don't really think that you can get inside a juror's head very much with with generic responses and generic information it's hard if you can't have some sort of dialogue with a potential juror even it's a few questions to to kind of assess their attitude and mentality because as you know when jurors come into the room they have all sorts of different agendas and mentality some people want badly to be on your jury could be horribly bad for you or horribly good for you Right. right Or some people absolutely don't want no part of being there, which could be obviously very bad for you, or once in a while maybe good for you. And then there's all sorts of people in the middle. And the funny thing you find out from the defense perspective is a lot of times the jurors that expose themselves and, and say a lot of things about them actually give the fodder to the prosecutors to try to get rid of them yeah, so right. it's like don't don't say that <laughs> you're like yeah. you would have been great yeah I, I hear some lawyers say that a lot of the case winning or losing is done in that process i don't know if you agree with that or not I, or do you get the sense after the jury's picked oh we're gonna have to is like a come from behind victory for this one it's a tough call. In federal court, you always feel like you're up against it. You know, first of all, you're battling the the government's, you know, years-long investigation, whatever evidence they've gathered, and then you're battling a jury system that doesn't give you a lot of time to pick a jury to find out much about them. And and then in federal court in Chicago, it's very different than, say, if you're at 26 in California. The mm-hmm. jury pool is quite different. Yeah, how do they pick it? Uh, yeah, I was wondering, is it the same as a normal summons, or how does it work? Well, you get you get summoned, but keep in mind that the district is very different. You know, the, the Northern District of Illinois, which is our federal court, goes all the way up to basically the Wisconsin border, mm-hmm. goes all the way west out to Rockford, and then you have Rockford Federal Court. It goes all the way over to Indiana, mm-hmm. and it goes real far west. So you, you get people who can be very far flung from Chicago, not County residents um, could be a largely suburban or rural type of jury, so it's mm-hmm. very different and it's much less diverse than you would get in state court. That's interesting. Um, let's talk about some of the cases you've been working on recently. You were involved in a case down in St. Louis involving a reality TV star, right? Yeah, just getting involved in that one. Yeah, just just coming in. Okay, uh, it's kind of an interesting case. Uh, I don't know if you watch the Oprah Network. No, I do not. No. <laughs> You're supposed to say I you love do. Oprah, yeah. though. I mean, yes, I do, Michael. Yes, tell me. Let's <laughs> tell let's me talk more. more about it. So she had a reality. One of the reality TV shows she had on there was called. Uh, I think it's called Welcome to Sweetie Pies. Which Sweetie Pies is a a chain of not a chain, but a a group of soul food restaurants, mostly in St. Louis and down south. 
and um, they're the sort of patriarch, the matriarch of the of the restaurants is a woman who's about 80, 81 years old. She's a former Ike and Tina Turner backup singer, one of the Ikeettes. Oh, cool. She started this empire. Really interesting woman, great woman. And her son, uh, who also was heavily involved in running the restaurants and on the reality TV show, one of the main characters, he was charged along with several others for a murder to hire plot. Whoa. which involves the nephew of, of both of them. And so uh, we're just coming in. We're going to get the opportunity to try the case down in federal court in St. Louis. So I'm really looking forward to the opportunity. have had a chance to talk to the defendant. His name's Tim Norman a number of times. And, uh, you know, really for, at first glance, you, you kind of wonder how he even got charged. So it's going to be uh, a, quite a fun challenge for us. And that's a, I mean, that's, we're talking serious stuff here. I mean, every case you deal with is serious, but murder for hire, you get to a, a different level of that sort of thing, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. The, the penalties, especially in federal court are in, in, in this one would include by statute, you know, could be life imprisonment or death. Um, so yeah, the stakes, the stakes are certainly high. Wow. Is there anything that you do differently with someone that a defendant that maybe people know? Does it, does it change the outlook of how you, you know, go about your case? Well, I think you, you still have to do all the things you normally do. You still have to build your theme, build the evidence, build your theory of the case. But the big difference is all the attention that it gets. You know, yeah. So, for instance, you know, we were for a time involved in the R. Kelly case. It's just the, the people that have an interest in the case, the media that has an interest in the case. So everything that you file or say in court or say publicly is be subject to a lot of scrutiny and you know sometimes uh, second guessing of what you're doing and why you're doing it. So, but th- that's just the challenge you embrace. And of course, you want to be involved in high profile cases. Yeah, I don't think it was a federal case, but I was watching some of the testimony of Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, yeah. and the judge even at the beginning said something like, "Well, this is the most eyes I've ever had in this courtroom," and these are humans, yeah. right? Prosecutors, defense attorneys, judges. That's got to be nerve-wracking. Well, it's, it's definitely going to affect how people participate. You know, even from the juror's perspective, you know, weeding out people that might have negative views based on what they've read, trying to get people in that have positive views from what they've read, you know. But uh, clearly it gets more attention than, than the average case, and certainly more is going to be written about it. Are you someone that thrives on it a little bit, though, too? Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, I mean, there, there's nothing quite like having that uh, the wall of cameras as you walk into a, a courthouse. That's, a, that's always a fun, uh, fun thing to see. Can you tap dance like Billy Flynn in Chicago? Not, or not? quite as good. Not quite as good. More of a break dancer. More of an 80s guy. Yeah. <laughs> really? What are you, some of your favorite <laughs> no, acts? I'm, okay. I'm really not. Okay. All right, 312-981-7200. We've got any questions. Um, I know you do a lot of whistleblower cases too, right? Or I don't know about how many, but you definitely do them, including one involving the state of Illinois, right? We have about a minute before the news. If you could tee it up and we can continue the conversation Sure. Afterwards. Yeah, we'll talk about it in a minute, but... Yeah, we, we regularly represent on the civil side in trials people who are whistleblowers who are either complaining that their companies is violating the law or bilking the government. So the case that we're going to talk about involves the state of Illinois and their, their vendor payment program and the whistleblower that we, Ooh. that we represent in that one. So it's, it's involves some, some high, uh, profile you know political types and state money so that's always fun you're good at teasing this you're a professional you should <laughs> be I, on this side of the I microphone all the 60 seconds <laughs> no, you did great <laughs> where can people reach you by the way if they're running out of their car if they think that they might need to be represented by you or people that you know sure 312-380-6559 leonard trial lawyers.com l-e-o-n-a-r-d trial lawyers.com we'll continue our conversation about that whistleblower case and others after the news here on wgn 
Hey, everyone. It's John Hanson. This is Let's Get Legal. It's powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Michael Leonard is across from me. We need to have a podcast of the conversations we have during the commercial break, Michael. <laughs> I don't know if we can at share At least all. the two of us would listen to yeah. it. Yeah. There'd <laughs> be might, two fans. That might be about it. Let's go to the phone line, and let's go to Mark. Mark, you're on WGN. Mark, you got some interesting questions. How are you doing, Mark? Good, John. Thank you for having me on. Love the show. Absolutely. I appreciate it. What's your question for Michael? Uh, well, I love hearing about all Mike's uh, trials and all the trial work he does. But, um, you know, my question is, we were talking earlier about how what should be a law, what shouldn't be a law. Yeah. What, what are some of the unwritten rules or, or considerations that go into deciding whether to take a case to trial, whether it's a civil case or a criminal case uh, versus pleading guilty or, or trying to settle the case. Great question. Great question, Mark. Yeah, I think there's, you know, two two very different sets of considerations in, in the criminal cases, especially federal you know, that's one whole animal, and then we'll talk about the civil. But in, in the criminal federal ones, oftentimes the sentences that you face are so outrageous that really it's it's difficult to make the decision whether to go to trial. Um, however, sometimes those outrageous sentences make it easier to go to trial. You know, if, if the idea is that, look, you know, your client's going to get 10 or 14 or 20 years if they plead guilty, and they have, you know, a small chance of winning a trial, whatever that is, a lot of guys will say, your clients will say, well, gee, you know, why don't we go to trial? The swing, and they're right in a lot of instances, the swing is not going to be that great. You know, maybe they get, if they lose, maybe they get 12 or 24 months more on top of that crazy amount. So you could argue that sometimes when the sentences get so crazy, it gives you no choice but to do it. Other cases, and there's many more that are in the middle, where your client is, is really making the same sort of risk benefit analysis, you know, uh, do I, what are my odds of winning? And, you know, what's the t- statistical probability? What's the weight of the evidence against my client in this particular case? You know, do we really have a good defense that we can take this to the jury and win the case? Balance against how much time they're going to get. Right. And, you know, a lot of that is, is there's still a lot of uncertainty. You know, the range that's likely, but oftentimes it's hard to guarantee. You can't guarantee. And it's oftentimes hard to, tell the client exactly what you think they're going to get, but you know you know a very strong idea of what the range is going to be. So making that decision of going to trial in federal court versus playing is, is one of the most excruciating ones you're ever going to make, and it's similar to making the decision whether your client testifies in that trial. Oh, yeah. Um, that's a hard decision, too. Oh, that's, a, that's a crazy one, too. But And then to Mark's question, in the civil cases, you know, you're making a different analysis. You're making it over money. You know, so that's all the relief you can get. So if you're rep- representing a plaintiff in a civil case and you're you're analyzing doing the risk benefit analysis, you know, if I go to trial, you know, what's what's my recovery likely going to be if I'm going to win? What are my odds in my in my own view of of losing? What's the possibility of that? You know, try to do a percentage calculation if you can. Again, you're you're really in speculation land, and then trying to decide, okay, well, if I can get this bucket of money now with no risk to my client and the client is is happy with that number then let's take it you know then ultimately that's the client's decision right and a lot of them come to a comfort level that gee you know i can get x maybe i could get x plus if i go to trial but i don't want that risk i don't want to get a zero i don't want to get something less that's being offered to me now so i'm going to go ahead and make that decision to take the money and as you know john you know, unfortunately or fortunately, 90, 95, maybe even more civil cases never go to trial. Either right. they get dismissed, they get summary judgment out before trial, or they or they settle in, in a huge amount of instances. Right. Mark, that's the kind of answer you get here on Let's Get Legal, all right? You asked a good question, and you got a good answer. Thanks for calling, my friend. Thanks so much, John. Love the answer. Uh, love listening to both of you on the radio. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. 
I bet every client at some point goes, well, tell me what you think. Do we got a shot? Do they ask you that straight up? And then how do you balance that answer? Like, could you just give an honest assessment and try and keep any of your personal thoughts on it? Or do you, do you give them like an honest, like, or here's the percentage of what I think yeah. we could have. You, you can't give them a percentage. I mean, uh-huh. it's, it's impossible to give a percentage. But you just lay out, whether it's civil, whether it's criminal, you lay out the, the points and the facts, the evidence in their favor. What are the huge you know, holes or Achilles heels to your case? And then, you know, what, what the jury is going to be like, what, what your jurisdiction and judge is like. And you give them a really thorough, honest assessment of the evidence, you know, and, but in federal criminal cases, I, I find oftentimes you just, you just don't have a, a choice. It's worth the risk. Um, because what they're facing oftentimes is, is, is harsh. And, right. and no one really wants to say, yeah, I'd, I'd rather just take those years and not have a chance of winning. But there's other cases where, you know, it, it's the case is somewhat indefensible. Yeah. You know, that, that happens for sure. Another good question coming online. If you want to throw those on again, we got Rob on WGN. Hey, Rob, how you doing this afternoon? Uh, doing great. Thanks for uh, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, for sure. What's your question? You know, I was just wondering. You know, what makes a good whistleblower case? I know Mike was talking about whistleblowing and fraud and stuff like that. Like, how do you know when you got a good one and when to call Mike about it? You know what I mean? Yeah, right. Like, how do you know if it's something that you think needs to be brought forward? As maybe I want to be that whistleblower. How hard is that, Michael? It's it's a tough decision to become a whistleblower oftentimes because, uh, unfortunately and somewhat surprisingly, the, the backlash you get from your peers in the company or in the organization that you work or the political entity is sometimes very harsh. I mean, we've had whistleblowers that, you know, a good example is we represented a couple who was down in Florida, worked for a giant one of the pharmacy giants, a, a, a what was called a PBM, mm-hmm. and they decided to become whistleblowers because they thought some serious things were going on that they thought were wrong. For instance, uh, reusing return prescription drugs. That's that's a big one. And there was other things where, you know, by way of phone calls, you know, the employees were changing people's prescriptions or adding to them or deleting them. So they decided to, to, to make the hard choice, even though they been working for the company for, you know, 10, 15 years to come forward and be whistleblowers. And so they, they thought that, you know, sort of naively that, you know, everyone would rally around them, right. all their friends and colleagues would say, hey, finally someone stood up to, to the company. And the story got a lot of press down in the Florida papers when it when it first came out. And, and literally they walked in the next day and they were getting that old cold shoulder, like zero, literally nobody would speak to them. And that's how it went for the rest of their employment. So wow. it's not always that and stark these, right. because, because a lot of times you do have a lot of people that support what you're doing. And they're, they are afraid to come forward, but they actually will come and support what you're doing. So in analyzing whether you want to take on a particular whistleblower case, it's not so much the whistleblowers themselves. You know, it, it's really, are there allegations? Do they stand up? You know, because what happens in every whistleblower case is that the big law firms who are get hired to defend the companies, they will attack the whistleblowers. They'll say, oh, well, you're a liar. You did this. You got the speeding ticket in 1974. <laughs> you know, you had a they're sexual harassment. You know, they'll do anything they can yeah. to attack their credibility. And usually it has absolutely nothing to do with the allegations, right? right. So the, the first and foremost, you got to make sure, is it a solid case that you can win? Are the allegations good? Is it really fraud? And unfortunately, in a civil case, you actually have to look at is it monetarily worth it? Because you might have a great whistleblower case or maybe something going on that's horribly wrong, but there's really no way to recover any money, which is really the only remedy you have. Sometimes you can just right the wrong, but it's tough for people to get behind that if they can't be rewarded in some way. And that's why we have whistleblower laws to yeah. incentivize people to come forward. I'm kind of confused on, like, I, I know what a whistleblower is. 
Um, if I had something, and I don't, this company or any company, but if WGN I did, does no, nothing wrong. Nothing. Yeah. Not a thing, of course. But let's say I did, is it a matter I need to call a lawyer first? And I'm just reminded of the episode of The Office where Michael Scott tries to declare bankruptcy and he just goes into the office and says, I declare bankruptcy. <laughs> what do you, you don't just go on to Michigan Avenue and say, I'm a whistleblower. Like you and your lawyer would come forward and issue some sort of case. Like there's actually like a case uh, or an investigation that's launched. How does it yeah, work? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a couple different types of whistleblowers. So oftentimes we'll see on TV where it may be someone who's coming forward and you know, is going before Congress or something like that, or just going on TV and, and talking about some horrible thing that's happening out there that they want to write like that a press wrong. conference. They yeah, just... they want to write that wrong. But you know, in terms of being a lawsuit, it has to fit in a certain bucket. Right. Okay. So there are these what called QUITAM Q U I T A M statutes. Okay. Right. I'll try to remember that. One. Otherwise known as the False Claims Act. So we have those at the state level in Illinois and at the federal level. So if you can show in those kind of cases that your company is ripping off a governmental entity, right? These are laws that go back to Abraham Lincoln's time. Mm-hmm. So if you can show that your company's ripping off the government, you can recover money in the name of the government. And the great thing is you get a kicker. You get up to 30% of the money. Are you kidding? Of course. That's why, that's why, that's people, the incentive, that's yeah. why people do it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a huge incentive. And then and there's other kind of whistleblower cases that you, that you hear about, which are sort of a different animal where you're working in a company and they're violating the law and they're doing something wrong, and then you report it, maybe internally or externally, and then they fire you, and then you have a case because they fired you for bringing that yeah. violation of law. Forward. You have to be harmed in some way. To you don't. Bring you it. don't have to be harmed, but you can. You just have to show that your company is violating the law. But yeah, to to have a, that kind of case, you'd have to be retaliated against by being terminated, right? And then you could bring that case. Interesting. Hey, Rob, that was another long answer. Thanks for calling, my friend. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, I forgot that Rob Too was long, there. John? Too no, long, No, no, it's great. I just feel bad <laughs> that Rob was just sitting there as we're chatting on here. So entertaining, though. Yeah, it was. No, it really, this is fat. We're going to a ton of text people. Like, this is so fascinating. we got to take a break, and then let's talk about that whistleblower case okay, before the end will. of the show here. We on, will. On let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association on WGN. We've been teasing this whistleblower case. We talked about whistleblowers. What are you working on? So we just unsealed one, meaning uh, some of these whistleblower cases that we talked about earlier, they're about state money. Mm -hmm. So when you file them, they have to be filed under seal, meaning secretly. So Mm -hmm. you know about it. The Illinois Attorney General's office knows about it, but the defendants don't know about it. Oh, okay. So this case just recently came out of seal. I don't know if you know, if you remember, Illinois set up this program, which I think is kind of crazy, but it's called the Vendor Payment Program. Mm -hmm. So you know how Illinois owes people who are vendors lots of money, right? Right, because they stopped paying or paid them way less than they were supposed to for a long time. So they came up with this concept where they come up with this vendor payment program where a certain few companies, there's like five of them, could purchase the receivables, meaning if you're a vendor... That was owed money by the state. Okay. And let's say let's say you're owned hundred grand. Okay. One of these companies would step in and they'd say, Hey, we'll give you ninety grand now, and then we'll give you the other ten percent when the state pays us all the money. Right? So it's like a reverse collector. Yeah. So it's good. And on one hand, it's good. You got you got vendors paid right. more, more promptly. But the, but the crazy thing about it is they the companies that stepped in and paid these bills. They still allowed them to collect millions or tens of millions in late fees and penalties and interest. So instead of saving the state money, it costs them hundreds of millions of dollars. More, right. More. So the case we have is where one of these companies who was paying the vendors, what they did is they set up a couple of other, other companies, one in Florida and one in, I think it's Puerto Rico. And the idea, the allegations are they did that so that when they got all this money from the state, they could 
assign it to these other companies and avoiding paid income tax on the money they were getting from the state. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So so that's just kind of kicking off. And there's some, I won't mention the names, yeah. there's sort of high profile political types that are only involved with those companies. Whoa. So that'll, that'll make the depositions fun. Yeah, when when will we ever know about that? When they get a, like, what, is it when it becomes in, in court? That's I, where we would learn. Yeah, I mean, I wish if we it could, I wish we could bring them into the booth for their depositions, job, but we don't, we don't get to do that. <laughs> but yeah, we will. Yeah, there'll be court appearances. But as you know, you know, in civil cases, there's there's really not that much to talk about until you go to trial. Okay, man, that's fascinating. That's a tease. It's a tease. We don't even know if we'll ever get the answer to. Yeah, Michael we will. Well, keep, keep having me back, and eventually <laughs> I'll have an answer. Right, exactly. We have we have about two minutes left. Anything else you want on the, the latest on the Eddie Johnson case? I know uh, he's. Yeah, we're we're slowly moving forward. Um, you know, we've taken the plaintiff's Miss Donald's deposition. She's the one who brought the allegations against Mr. Johnson. So we had a, a long seven-hour deposition of her to examine her allegations, mm-hmm. and then he was actually just deposed yesterday. So he had to sit for seven hours and answer all the questions. And as you remember. That case is, you know, based on what we say, and Eddie Johnson says, and he said publicly, a consensual relationship for right. a couple of years, unfortunately, outside each of their marriages. And now the plaintiff has turned around and sued him and said that it's not a consensual relationship. So right. someday that will probably go to trial here in Chicago. Right, because outside the marriage, well, some people may frown on that, not illegal. Correct. So, right. you know, you can have a sexual harassment case, but the question in a sexual harassment case is, it was it unwanted, was it unwelcome, or was it consensual? Yeah. You know, consensual adults, obviously, even if they're married, unfortunately, can still do those things in the workplace, but you don't have a case. Right. Fascinating stuff, Michael. We'll talk again soon. LeonardTrialLawyers.com, and uh, you can call uh, the office there at Leonard Trial Lawyers at 312-380-6559. Give you like 30 seconds. Who should be reaching out to you? Everybody, John. Everyone should <laughs> pick up the phone. Oh, no. So traditionally, we represent individuals who are facing federal criminal charges or investigations, and obviously also people who are charged with state crimes. That's our, that's our criminal practice. And then probably a, a quarter of our practice is representing individuals who are suing oftentimes large corporations or small corporations for whistleblower-related things or employment discrimination, things of that nature. So we, we, uh, we focus on, on the criminal but do a, a lot of civil trials as well. Can I keep this card, by the way? You can. Pass, copy it, pass it out to your <laughs> friends. You know, Because if I'm ever in this situation, I feel like you're the pit bull that I want in my corner. I hope so. I hope yeah, so. That, man. That's our job. Yeah, but you just like, I, I don't want to say you're itching for a fight, but you like taking these cases on. Oh, it's fun. Yeah, I mean, uh, apart from hanging out with your family and friends, having a beer, trying a case is probably one of the greatest joys in life. That's awesome. Michael Leonard, thanks for hopping on. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks a lot, John. That was Let's Get Legal.